This is Power Athlete Radio. With your hosts, Denny Kaye, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Ingle B, Matt Props. Okay, Power Athlete Nation, episode 51. We've been bringing in some good guests, and we didn't hold back on this one either. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Luke Summers, John Wellborn, Steve Playtech, Tex McQuilkin. How are we doing? What's going on, dude? Great. How are you? What's up, Danny? Not much, not much. I'm still kind of tired. Uh, the wife and I went to Vegas last weekend. It's been about 14 years since I've been there. A lot's changed and a lot hasn't. But uh, uh, you got a couple more kids on the way. Up with uh, Luke Kelly and Tex, so that was cool. Went went to a nice place for dinner, had a good time. Uh, but like I said, I'm still kind of groggy. So what did you guys do? I, we we had, we were uh, me. fortunate enough to uh, meet up with. With Denny, we got some nachos, a couple burritos, shared a couple cocktails. But uh, I know we went in early because we had a we had a seminar. Tex was on his like third day of a bachelor party, so he went home and slept. <laughs> uh, but what did you guys end up doing? You know what? We went to the Westin, and they uh, we did some gambling there. That was about maybe a block or two away from the hotel that we were staying at, and it was it was one of the better casinos to be in because. Uh, it's been a while since I've been able to go into a building that in, that allowed you to smoke. You yeah. know, here in Illinois, like you can't do that shit anymore. So, so some of the casinos you go we there went into out in Vegas fucking reeked. It was like walking into so, an ashtray. So did, did, does that mean that you walked in with a cigarette on your lip? That this is like the first time you could go in there and fucking puff some dogs? So you were just in there just lighting <laughs> up, just <laughs> fucking chain smoking that shit like you're a fucking Shylock in fucking uh, Chicago style? Pretty much. You know, I mean, I could have done that and just throw on a pair of skinny jeans and I would have fit right in with everybody. Skinny jeans. <laughs> well, yeah. I, did you fit in with Luke Summers? Was he rocking skinny jeans and a cigarette? I heard he was wearing a real deep V T-shirt the whole weekend. They're technically boot cut, but my calves are so big they're just glued on to them. Uh, there are some pictures floating around the internet of Luke Summers in some gold shorts with some uh, some women <laughs> that look like play offensive line Chicago Bears. But uh, I'm just throwing like the rumor out there. That's my. Those are my party pants. Oh, brother. No, but we went Luke's there. Looks like them biggins. They'll buy you drinks all night. I was able to. I met some cool people. Um, they had like a little comedy show there, so we kind of just did that. We had to um, catch a six a.m. flight out of Vegas yesterday morning, and we had to get a sh- shuttle there from four. And we're on the third floor, and at two in the morning, like the room across for us. The guy's got a fucking dog in there barking his ass off for like an hour. <laughs> and I open the door, you know, because I was going to, like, I had enough. So I, I open the door. I'm in my boxers. There's like two security guards standing there. And they're like, you know what, sir, there's really nothing that we can do because this dog isn't abandoned. 
we, we've got a hold of the owner. He's at the Bellagio. He's on his way. And I'm like, well, fuck, man. You know, technically, we don't put dogs on the third floor. We put them on the first floor um, to not bother anybody. And I was like, whatever. There was nothing anybody could do. And um, so we were basically, you know, up at that time anyway. So just got a few hours of sleep. Yeah. You know? Well, uh, let's. I guess on, on my end, when yeah, I, went back, I went back to the hotel, tried to lay down, get some sleep, and uh, there was a, a young, what appeared, what sounded like a young man and woman jumping on the bed all night, just screaming at each other, uh, having a, a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know what to do in that scenario, because I'm not going to just go break that up. No. But uh, So, yeah, sleep was, uh, sleep was thin. Saturday night for sure. It was it was noisy at the the Hilton. Yeah, but, uh, but you know what? I mean, it was. It, what overall, did it sound like, Luke? It was, like uh, it was a good time. Like what? <laughs> sound like a couple dogs howling and some people jumping down the bed. Yeah. Okay. Sound like play like, like, like play tech on fourteen point four. Now is fourteen point four like is that a date number? Or is that a workout? No, that's how he does his students. He shows a video of him doing the of the wad. <laughs> well, you mean W A D or W O D? I think Playtech's gone. Or yeah. He doesn't know he's on mute. Fucking Playtech, <laughs> aka <laughs> fucking Johnny Wad. Unmute your mic. <laughs> I heard Playtech teaches school in just a full spandex outfit. <laughs> You don't have to be jealous, John. Uh, I'm not jealous. I'm just merely pointing out the obvious that you teach in spandex. I mean, it's cool. I, I'm I'm upset. I didn't take your class. <laughs> Guys are dead. <dicks>. You know? <laughs> so, Luke, what do we got coming out of HQ? Um, Mid Atlantic Challenge. You ready? Yeah, so, yeah, Callie and I have been training for that. We we are the first official sponsored team by Power Athlete, which is uh, convenient that we're on it. But, dude, it's cool. We've uh, we've been training with some programming that we're experimenting on over here, and uh, and we're going to go there and try and take it out. The first workout was announced. It's uh, you got teams of four, two men, two women. And uh, the first workout is you have six minutes to establish a 1RM clean and jerk and a 1RM snatch. So a pair, a female-male pair, have to establish a 1RM snatch, and then a female-male pair on the second six-minute interval have to establish a 1RM clean and jerk. So that's within our wheelhouse, at least my wheelhouse, because there's no exercise. Uh, so we got that for workout one, and then I guess the second workout, what was Kelly saying it was this morning? Uh, burpee box. Toes the box. Yeah, something where, like, I think uh, I think you gotta like jump over a box that has uh, razor blades in it, <laughs> and when you land on the other side, there's a pit of fire with a uh, with uh, sea bass that have lasers on their heads. And then after you navigate those guys, you have to clean and jerk uh, 400 pounds for like seven reps, and then uh, oh, then you gotta fight to the death. So the second workout. Oh, nice, nice. The Great. second workout. <laughs> Text it has like a two what like seven minute rounds two seven minute rounds and then again two partners per round and you have to buy in with a thirty calorie row and then after that it's forty five pound dumbbell burpee box jump 
overs or something like that. Standards and demos are yet to be released, but and then some toast to bar, and it's like a five rep lat incrementing ladder. All they really do is they just go scan the old CrossFit football pages and steal workouts. Because we've been doing like. Yeah, we did burpee box overs years ago. I'm pretty sure that... Uh, and no one else on in the world apparently No, has, we know? invented this shit. I'm pretty sure that between Raphael and I, we invented most things. So that basically means, Luke, if you don't win, you're fired. I'll, yeah. No pressure. <laughs> I mean, you invented this shit, right? Well, I, no, I invented it. That's Yeah, we got to get John out there to compete. God gave it to Raphael. Raphael gave it to me. And then I, we gave it to the world. The direct chain of command from God himself. I yeah. like it. Well, you know, the reason Raphael's in such good shape is he actually carried Moses down the hill with the tablets. And the reason why he infant. broke the tablets was that Raphael stumbled under the weight. The, the question is, did he maintain posture and position, right? Well, he did. There was a rock that he had to navigate. And, you know, you can only be so much of a ninja, you know, when you're carrying an old man with stone tablets. So I guess this is a good segue into introducing the Ruiz. That was the first. That was a great introduction. I gotta write that down. <laughs> Danny, write that down. Right now, I'm doing it right now. Okay. All right. So we got Raphael with the, on the show with us today. We talked about him. This is what our 51st episode, and we probably talk about him at, in some form or fashion on every episode when when we go through just blasting people on. Uh, on posture and position, and really the methodology behind the whole thing, and the influence he's had on the CrossFit football program, power athletes. So, John, why don't you, why don't you give him the intro? Yeah, um, I met Ruiz in the year 2000. Um, I was a young NFL player, moved to Tampa, Florida. Uh, I ended up getting kind of sucked down there. My older brother was living down there, and went down to Tampa. So I show up in Tampa, um, need to start training. Contacted my agent and asked him where I should work out if he knew anybody. And he called me back and said, there's this young guy that trains a lot of professional athletes that you need to go check out. Get him Rafael Ruiz. Give me his phone number. And I called him up, went out, and went out to the University of Tampa. And there was this young guy who was, I couldn't tell if he was younger than me, older than me, or, you know, didn't know. He just seemed like he was uh, in charge and <laughs> signed up and, we went out that day one, and I remember with a piece of TheraBan and some hurdles, he fucking destroyed me. And it was great. I mean, there was other professional athletes out there. It was a great environment. And from day one, uh, you know, when you meet Roth, he definitely inspires confidence. And there was never a doubt that we weren't going to do great things together. And we proceeded to train together for the next five, six years and have stayed friends for a long time, and uh, you know a lot of what you guys see in terms of the Power Athlete program across the football is really, uh, you know, comes from a lot from not only my training history, but a lot of the work that I've done with Raphael, and even a lot of the influences for you know teaching the seminar and just a lot of the stuff. So I remember, uh, you know, some of the most workouts that I've ever put together really came. In, involved in our training with Roth and uh, yeah, I, mean, I can go back mentally and think about when we trained in that you know dungeon of a place. This uh, we trained in a warehouse in the middle of Tampa in the summer where it was like 140 degrees for an entire summer, and you know we uh, definitely had some great moments and there was just a lot of learning, a lot of great information there. So uh, it really kind of formed this, and Roth is really one of the pillars of the program, and so we're excited to have him on the program and you know hear hear what he's up to, and uh, more importantly, um, you know. Clue you guys into one four four one and what Raphael's doing. 
All right. Yeah. Tux, how we doing? Good, good. Uh, just them? sitting here in this office. No, I think um, we're on a bit of a delay. I'm not sure. No, can you hear? Yeah, we got you. But uh, so I guess be patient as we get. I know we're there on a bit of a delay over there. So let it rip over there. Yeah, so uh, I've been training, I think, uh, probably about 10 weeks now down at 144.1 with Ruff and learning the ins and the outs of the program. Uh, so I came in here with a lot of the base knowledge that many people see at our seminar, the posture, the positions, a lot of the movements, but, I mean, that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. So the other thing is just kind of the acceleration, change of direction, and actually moving through space. So it's been kind of an adjustment going from just repetition of movements over and over to actually changing direction, crossing over, doing all this crazy shit I've never done before besides sports. So it's been fun, and uh, it's definitely been a learning experience, especially getting yelled at every day for doing something right or wrong. Um, yeah, so the... Uh, Kind of what so I'm, take us through day work, right Tex. I mean, you, I know you went down there. So uh, yeah, right now we're we're involved with a lot of programs. Uh, we got a couple training sessions in the morning, and then after uh, probably about three hours of training, we go through lecture. So lecture can last anywhere from an hour, two hours, to three hours, depending on what kind of rabbit holes we go through. And then we're, we're working with a high school football team out here in St. Petersburg. And uh, I know I talk, talked a little bit about kind of their experience or lack thereof, but it's kind of starting below zero and then building an athlete truly from the ground up who, I mean, they show up in boat shoes, flip-flops, who knows why. They're running in socks, doing uh, squats and cleats. So it's definitely a learning experience as a coach and a true minimalist experience as a coach. I mean, you should see their weight room. Uh, we walk out and our clothes are covered in rust. I can't imagine what we're breathing in in there. And, uh, I mean, it's been fun. They got some uh, some charismatic football coaches there, so we're learning a lot of one-liners and uh, things to take away that probably wouldn't fly, I mean, when I was at Georgetown or anything like that. But, uh, I mean, it's a good time. And, um, I mean, we're, we're seeing what kind of crazy stuff we can do with little to no equipment, and I mean, that's where Raf may, it's, it's his bread and butter. Anything to add on football, training, working with that team? All right, so... Uh, um, it has been really interesting. Hello. Yeah, you're on, go. It's, I'll just go. It's been really interesting working with these guys. They, um... It really reminds me a lot of when we first started at the University of Tampa. There really isn't any, there isn't a single weight room there um, that anybody would be proud of. Um, and so it's really allowed us to be very creative. It's allowed us to think outside of the box and, and come up with a way that we could do the best job that we can possibly do and giving these guys a good foundation. So when we pass them off back to the coaches for spring ball in their summer program, that hopefully we can we can hang hang our heads high on that one. I've also uh, I've also taken up swimming, and those that uh, know me pretty well, I'm, I'm basically define myself as a land-based animal. 
So uh, my first day here, it was actually a Saturday, and Raf just texted me to meet him at the beach. And we go through some sprints, some push-ups, some stuff I was shining at, but then um, then we had to take the shirts off and get in the ocean. And he just asked me, you know, how would I rate myself from 1 to 10 on open water swimming? I think he said like negative five or something crazy. I've never taken swim lessons in my life, really so familiar. it was, uh, yeah. So uh, in 10 weeks, I've swam so probably about 12 times. Uh, yeah, naturally. I'm really good at sinking. It's all the other stuff. And um, so I took a reverse route. So we've evolved from open water ocean swimming to now actually we're learning how to swim in a pool. So, I mean, uh, I don't know a lot of coaches that would do it that way, but it's it's uh, it's easy. Going from the most extreme you gotta environment ever to now a, you got to stress to progress, Well... Drown proofing in a freaking eleven foot, eleven foot deep pool—that's stress. <laughs> well, yeah, I've never experienced well, anxiety like that. Well, uh, what you're experiencing is uh, part of Raphael's philosophy, and that as he got you out there, he was so scared by what happened, he decided to regress you into the pool because he did not want to have to save your life <laughs> in the ocean. So. What, what you're really seeing and what he'll do is he'll paint it as like this is, uh, oh, yeah, you know, we're progressing. We're doing the reverse progression. He'll give you some, you know, scientific mumbo-jumbo, some strength and conditioning. You know, when in actuality, he's like, I can probably save him in a pool. I'm not going to be able to save him in the ocean. So, you know what, let's make this easier on us as a whole. And, uh, you know, but, I mean, Tex, I, I really think it's the yeah. uh, the volume of arm hair that you have on your forearms that really hurt your stroke. So you got to shave that arm hair yeah, off. Yeah, if you shave the arm hair, I mean, because look at Rob. He's got a hairless cat. So if you look at a hairless cat, you're going to swim better. So just shave up the forearms. It'd be better. <laughs> Sounds like good science. It's science. Yeah, it's what are what else we got? So we're what Rob's fo focusing on now, Tex. What you got? We got the the one four four one TFR. So what, Rob? Why don't you just go into a little bit about the what's going on with one four four one, and then Tex maybe uh, maybe lead in it with some follow up questions regarding uh, some of the conversation we had over dinner the other week with uh, you know just the philosophy behind force bleed and mitigating force bleed and where we can find or witness force bleed in sport, uh, you know, things like that. Um, as far as 144.1, one of the things that we started to catch on to pretty quick was um, we can't change genetics. And you're always going to have absolute gorillas like a John Wellborn. You're always going to have super sprinters like a Usain Bolt. And Regardless of how hard any of us are going to train, we're never going to be at that level because of just God-given gifts. Um, but what we can do is we can reduce the things that are holding us back from reaching potential. And we say it all the time. There's a lot of athletes, the majority of athletes, um, you're not going to perform well because you're lacking in something. It's normally something is limiting you. And so oftentimes somebody might pull a hamstring and it's not because your hamstrings aren't strong enough, it's because you're asking your hamstrings to do too much. 
or one head of your hamstring, the inside or outside head, is probably working harder than it needs to. And so now all of a sudden it pulls or it tears. Um, and that's really the way that we've designed the entire program is, is we're going to try to figure out things that make you suck. And we're going to address those um, while continuously allowing you to progress and, and be good at what you're good at. So for us, we really look at little things like that and saying, hey, you know, uh, there's force bleed here because your hips are immobile. And so it's making your running form get all squirrely on us. So let's fix that. Let's address it. Let's lengthen something. Let's strengthen something. So now we can take away that that opportunity for us to make fun of your poor running mechanics. I, and yeah, and some, uh, some of the force bleed conversation that Luke and I had, I know Denny and I have had some side as well. And, I mean, it all goes back to kind of the, that change of direction uh, where we talk about in CrossFit football and positioning. So the toes forward, knees forward, uh, kind of change of direction positions in CrossFit football or lateral speed and agility portion. And a lot of people, they're taught to squat toes out. So when we just say, hey, shuffle this way, shuffle that way, stop, change direction, they then do that with the toes out, knees out, and we just kind of see some wacky things going on with their knees. Uh, I mean, their their trunk isn't strong enough. They're just falling over lateral. They get the wily coyote going on any change of direction. So lots of uh, lots of little things, and then um, it it came down to jumping as well. So, I mean, I've worked with a lot of female athletes, and then anytime they are asked to jump or uh, do anything, change the direction, you just saw this huge valgus knee. Uh, and so then, I mean, you could learn to see it when they're squatting and they got that particular drop. So all these portions uh, in their training, they weren't addressing this stuff. So I came in with a lot of these uh, questions for change of direction, for uh, training female athletes just because their cue angle, they're more prevalent for... Uh, these injuries, I mean, it all just comes down to force bleed and effective movement. Um, so, and then just going, I asked about navicular drop with Raphael, and then we went into just kind of some deep, deep thoughts going all the way back to Newton's, uh, you know, laws of force and ground contact force and how that's done to, I mean, uh, in the 100-meter sprint and full speed, and then it went to pose running. So, I mean, all these little things, it just comes down to uh, just Newton's laws of force and how that translates to moving fast, hard, uh, positioning, and how to minimize loss of force and how to maximize delivering force all over the place. Um, so, now, I know Denny had some questions, and Luke, uh, if you recall some of the things we were talking about, if you want to start firing away, uh, adding in, or asking... All right, Denny, so go ahead and fire off a question if you have one. Well, the conversation that Tex is referring to, um, in, in our communication, he was taking the approach through sprinting mechanics, and I decided to kind of look at it from um, a stationary, like a lift, um, a squat, I, I, a power clean, and so when you start looking at some of the mechanics in a power clean and where possible um, spots could be for force bleed, um, I came up with the conclusions that 
if, say, on the first poll of the power clean, um, some of the most common mistakes I see with the people I get to train with is they're not getting their shins back enough in the first poll. They're still kind of pitched forward. And that technically would be an area where force would bleed through. You know, if you're not keeping continuous tension, getting your hamstrings back, a good vertical shin to build up as much force as possible, you're going to lose that on your lift. And when I start correcting people and have them focus more on getting their shins back, they add like 10 or 20 pounds, you know, almost like that, to that lift, all just by looking at one limiting factor. You know, I mean, I kind of started thinking, well, then what about if you don't get enough of a shrug or if you don't have a strong enough grip on that power clean and your grip's weak, force bleed then would would result, uh, would become a result in that area as well. So I, mean, so I just kind of looked at like the power clean and that's what uh, Tex and I were exchanging emails in and I came up with about you know, three or four possible spots in that. Um, so then that would be like force bleed resulting from technique. Yes. Well, that wouldn't even be force bleed. Uh, the, by getting your shins back, you're actually keeping the bar more center to your midline or what they call closer to your center of gravity. So actually what you're doing is you're creating a more advantageous position for the bar in relation to your body mechanics. So what you're really talking about is reducing limiting factors. I don't know necessarily if you can look at force bleed in the same way as reducing margin of error. Um, when I think of force bleed, I always think about a, uh, you know, Indy car or a Formula One car going into a curve, uh, you know, like going in hard and as the tires are sliding, uh, that's like, you know, force bleeding into that slide. Now, what things can you do to mitigate the slide of the tire? Can you put on a bigger tire? Can you put on a more scuff? Can you change the suspension? Can the, uh, the driver pick a better line? So when you start looking at force bleed effects and we start really examining the force bleed model, it's about, you know, not only changing mechanics, but testing those mechanics by putting them in some form of, you know, like I said, going into that power slide. So when these guys are talking about force bleed, like talk about uh, where we most see it is like a change of direction or like a sprinter, you know, uh, somebody putting their foot in the ground, putting your foot in the ground straight ahead. Are they keeping, you know, a good position, good angle, they have a good knee bend, and you start kind of mitigating all these factors. So I think um, when I think about force bleed, I actually think of some form of dynamic kind of change of direction Whereas I think you're looking at force bleed effect more like maybe margin of error. application of force. Well, yeah. would it, could you technically be changing direction by going under the bar? No, Denny. Being no. extremely vertical no. and then dropping under? Denny, stop thinking like, uh, no. We're, we're <laughs> yes, there's lots of direction changes and joint angle changes in the power plane. But, you know, when we say change of direction, the context we're talking about is sprinting in a nonlinear fashion and requiring uh, different production of force along different vectors. Like, think of movement through space change of direction. Like, you're changing direction on a pull-up. You know okay. what I mean? But think about being athletic and your inability to be as athletic as a guy next to you due to your inability to uh, produce maximal force with whatever tools you have in your toolbox. Okay. 
you know, so that's and uh, Ralph, I guess Dax, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's more when we talk about this type of stuff. Uh, well, I guess you could talk about force bleeding in terms of the squat, like if somebody were to pull themselves under in their foot position going from a dynamic open uh, closed chain to an open but chain. But you're not considering the squat a change of direction movement, are you? No, but we do definitely do see some form of force bleeding in terms of the hips. I mean, I guess you could say the squat might be force bleeding. Could it? It could be knee position, hip position. Uh, like, like in that ankle article, I posted that video of Taylor. And that ankle rolls in, it shoots the knee in, and then his right hip just shoots off to who knows where. So the yeah. force is not going straight up and down. It's going all over the place. Yeah, I never think... If, if we're using the force bleed model for your... Uh, and I'm using the force bleed model in your squat, I think um, your squat is fucked. <laughs> in layman's terms. <laughs> and, and I've... Uh, you know, hung with Roth enough, and we've coached enough. I mean, we were fortunate to travel the world and coach thousands of athletes over a number of years. Uh, and not only that, but actually training our groups as, as a professional athlete, and me as more of the, uh, the athlete and him as the coach. I've seen enough uh, of these horrific looks on Roth's face to realize that, um, you know, people doing closed chain movements that are... Uh, you know, having force bleed effect is not a good thing. I mean, if you know, if you're seeing extreme force bleed and your feet are planted on the ground in a closed chain movement, I think we have some major issues that we probably need to address. And I know we've seen people do that, and it's pretty scary. Well, I think I can hopefully help Denny clear this up a little bit. Um, the amount of force that you're producing, so you take all of your muscles and you add up how much force those are putting the principle behind force bleed is you want all of that force to do what you intend it to do which you can look at it from a hardware issue you're gonna wear what type of shoes when you Olympic lift or when you power lift do you want Nike Air Shocks or or Skechers or do you want some nice, hard, stiff-soled shoes? Because from a hardware standpoint, the hard, stiff shoe has an immediate carryover, and there's no bleed of force. There's no dissipation of the amount of force that you're producing. It goes through your legs directly into the floor, and then that rebounds back up through the floor, which consequently gets you to stand up. And you take that into a little bit more sports-specific standpoint, um, talking on the Power Athlete Radio, there's nothing more powerful than getting punched in the face. So think about a boxer throwing a good old-fashioned All-American two. So we're going to right-handed boxer. We're going to go ahead and punch with the right hand, come right down the chute. And now all of a sudden, you want to link all of those joints. So everything from your right foot pushing down into the ground, you roll that hip over, and you want all of that force you're producing to be applied to somebody's face. So if a joint isn't 100% aligned, then there's going to be bleed of all of that, that wave of energy that's coming back up your body. So your, your butt and your hamstrings are producing an unbelievable amount of force, but if your spine is a little awkward, you got a nice little scoliotic curve to it, or you can't control that scoliotic curve, or you got an unstable shoulder, 
or you've got a bursa sac in your elbow that doesn't allow you to fully straighten that, then all of that force gets dissipated and you're not imparting all 100% of what you want into your opponent's face. And that's more of a force bleed issue when we talk about preparing athletes. It's less of a body positioning that you can voluntarily control. It's more of a, can I put my joints in the position so I can optimize and utilize all of the power that I'm producing? But doesn't that, doesn't technique become an issue when you're trying to align all your joints and, and maximize force? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. But that's something that, obviously, technical training over years and years and years, but like we said there's always going to be limited, limited performances because you can't control an excessive amount of internal rotation of your knee or an excessive amount of external rotation of your knee. So one of the things that we always try to dictate here is whatever you're asking, whatever you're asking as a trainer, as a coach, as a skill, somebody's trying to, to develop skill in an athlete, what you're trying to do is give somebody those, those tools so that a coach can get them to do the technical aspects that you're referring to. So if you want, if you can't get a more vertical shin and your athletes just can't do it, well, then there's something limiting them. And that's really where both aspects of a force bleed program come into play is I can, I can try to scream at somebody and coach them to do something, but until I give them the tools to be able to excessively externally rotate more to get their shins more vertical, then it's pointless for me to yell at them. And the same thing is, how many times, John, have we watched people collapse their knees in and we can't yell at them more because they don't have the balance, they don't have the abductors or the piriformis or the glute activation to get their knees in more of a neutral position. So to answer your question, Dennis, yes, all of that comes into play in terms of technique, but more often than not, it's because there's something wrong with the kinetic alignment. You think it goes back to uh, really the foundation of the training? I, you know, really what we've noticed over the years is that uh, you know people start this pretty advanced form of training without really creating the foundation or having the foundation needed to to build upon it. So everybody gets in and everybody sees the most advanced. Like, let me see the most difficult aspect of this program. I'm going to go right into that because obviously it's the most advanced. It's the best. Not realizing that there's a whole series of foundational movements that uh, an athlete needs to create a mass, you know, put into their, you know, toolbox. You can use a thousand different metaphors for it, but ultimately you need to master the basics before you can build on it. Uh, a big thing with, you know, when you uh, we take people, especially to the CrossFit Football Seminar, and we start, you know, working with our athletes. And I saw this, uh, you know, as a young athlete training with Rafael day one, and then all of a sudden fast forward four, four or five years, and showing up and, you know, training in the off-season and having new guys show up to train with us who had never done any of this work and just watching them get exposed. I remember, um, Rafa will remember the story when David Boston came and trained with us. And uh, Dave, David Boston is a big Charles Palkin guy and, you know, looks like a million bucks comes in and had uh, no foundation, no ability, and created no, 
no groundwork to be able to do the style of training that we were doing. Um, and just for the years, uh, you know, the foundations we built and the, the movement patterns and just the, the basic uh, movements that you guys see in across the football land and we've exposed you guys to are really those foundational movements that allow you to progress and build up. And without mastery of those, it, it just ends up looking like, in the analogy we use at the seminar, it's like handing somebody an Indy car and saying, hey, I need you to go turn some laps, but I'm going to loosen all your lug nuts and we're going to see what happens. Now you throw an unexperienced driver in that car and you let him go with the loose lug nuts are going to go. You give Mario Andretti that same car. He's probably going to navigate it safely, uh, but that's definitely related on the skill of the driver. So I think what we're really seeing is that, uh, you know, this kind of functional fitness, banging weights, moving, jumping, this athletic style of training needs to have a certain uh, foundation built into it, and I think people are just skipping that, and I think what we've done a great job of, or at least we're fighting, you know, I feel a lot like Beowulf sometimes fighting the good fight, uh, I'm sure Ruff does too, just trying to really expose people and say, you know what, uh, yeah, that stuff's all great, and I know I want you to get to the fun and the sexy stuff, but you got to kind of start over here, and, you know, I'm sure people show up to 1441, and uh, Texas seeing this is, you know, guys show up, and uh, I know one of my favorite things of training with Ruff is Ruff trains a lot of professional athletes, and Professional athletes, by nature, have a fairly large ego, and you bring guys in that are professional athletes that play at a high level, that make a shit ton of money, that got, you know, seven-digit contracts, and you bring them in, and they can't do anything. They either do one of two things: either they're humbled and they say, "Help me, and I need to get better," or they leave and they say, "That fucking guy doesn't know what he's talking about." And I know Roth's dealt with both of those types, where guys are like, "Oh, this is bullshit." Uh, you know, this Roths guy's crazy, he doesn't want to do, you know, I don't want to do any of this stuff. Or guys come in and they realize, you know what, I can't do this today and I'm pretty good, so if I can do this, I'm going to get better, and they go in that direction. So, um, you know, but that really speaks to the type of athlete you're dealing with and definitely the, you know, the environment you put them in. So hopefully most guys humble themselves and get into it and start learning and realize I don't know anything and I need to pull as much as I can. Or guys leave their tail between their legs and fucking never come back which we've seen too. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. We had uh, recently, um, we had one of our, our uh, pro athlete training camps and they, we had a, a TV crew come in. They wanted to interview and, and show the world how pro athletes train and so on and so forth. And they spent about an hour setting up lights and cameras and, and getting everything perfect. And um, I asked them, you know, what, what they were here to see in there. Like, we just want to see pro athletes train. And um, I go, all right, well, I'm not going to alter the workout, you know, for, for you guys. I, I've got a job to do. And they said, no, 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 you, um, you know, we trust you. And I remember that day was towards the middle of the week, and we do a lot of our, our joint uh, mobility, stability kind of issue. And it's what John had mentioned earlier. Um, we were doing, you know, Job's exercises and lateral bands on the boards. We had these dirty old ugly wooden boards with some some hooks in them, and and that's all we were doing. We were doing some time hold for 30 seconds, rep for 30 seconds, three four rounds of that, and then coupled with like some Saxon lunges, and um, and then some really easy movement work. And uh, uh, the reporter literally looked at me like. Is that it? That's all they're going to do? And I go, yeah, that's what they need. And um, it was a, a really humbling thing because he literally just started unplugging stuff. And he was like, all right, we're out of here because this is stupid. And it was a really interesting 
thing for, for me and my staff to see, um, and John made a really good point, um, the people that really stick with us and do really well, um, and I hate to say this, um, are guys that, that get injured and they get hurt and they start to realize um, it's not always about how much horsepower, it's it's I need to start fixing some things. If not, um, I might not have the longevity that I'm looking for or an injury might be so traumatic that they'd never want to experience that again. So they say, Raphael, just mold me, help me never to have to go through that ever again. So that's, so what, uh, they were expecting some sort of hard charging workout, like uh, battle ropes, hitting heavy bags, maybe fucking suplexing each other, or is that what this guy was thinking about, Ralph? No, there's like this idea that professional athletes train this way, that it's like, you know, weights, and they're like pulling out electrodes, like uh, the analogy well, is... like the Nike Sparks commercials and Nike like Sparks are like Rocky Four when Drago's training, that yeah. like, there'll be like people with stopwatches and lab coats, and people are sprinting around, and, <laughs> and like, you know, women are clapping, it's kind of like, uh, what, what was the football movie that, um, uh, that the Jamie Foxx was in? Any given Sunday when they're at practice and the cheerleaders are at practice and there's all those people and the doctors <laughs> out there. I don't know about you, but uh, I saw every, any given Sunday with my mom and dad and my girlfriend at the time. And, there's an interesting locker room scene. <laughs> they right, so, so, so my, my mom and dad were like wanted to see this any given Sunday, and so I go to and I see it like before, like I, I think it was like on like a, a Friday or I forgot what it was before a game or whatever. And so I'm sitting there with my mom and dad and my girlfriend and we're watching this movie and like the movie ends and like my mom turns to me and I think my girlfriend turned to me too and was like, is that what it's like? And I was like, laughing. I was like, no, but what fucking team is that? <laughs> I want to play on that team. They got like hot chicks and cheerleaders and dudes are cutting cars in half. I didn't play on that team. And uh, But you know what? That's the... That's what people want to sell because that's what people believe. Like, like you said, like the Nike Sparks commercial, that you know, it's like this like super technical thing, and they show up, and it's like, you know, they're doing boards and fucking, you know, Captain Morgans and all these other crazy things, and they don't realize that, you know, this is what the training looks like. That I mean, we we had this for years when we trained with Roth. Uh, you know, guys would show up, and you know, at one point, I think we had probably seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven guys that would show up consistently or professional athletes to train with us because our training camp was so good. And guys would show up and just get fucking shattered because it was so far outside of their wheelhouse. Or what the other problem was, they would see what I was doing or the guys that had been there a long time, and they'd be like, "Well, hey, I want to do that." And Rob would be like, "Well, these guys have been training with me for four or five years. Yeah, you know, they have a certain, you know, they've created the groundwork." And I think that was um, that was interesting. And, and even when I went out and trained at Verstegen's place when I moved back to California. Uh, when I went out to athletes' performance, I had already developed such a skill set that, uh, you know, guys not come with that skill set that I actually kind of was allowed allowed to progress the training a little bit. I mean, those guys would bring a guy in, and he was there for three weeks, and they spent nothing but trying to develop and teach him to activate his core, which I thought was fucking ridiculous. But, um, you know, it's just, I don't know, that's, uh, that's part of my deal with that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> There, uh, after after we had Ant on the physio detective, uh, he mentioned a video of um, a strength and conditioning coach working with Brandon Roy, and they have kind of that film crew there, and there he's taking Brandon Roy through these dynamic movements, 
And, I mean, you want to see force speed, you got to look at his knees and just his hips go in all these crazy directions. And you have the strength and conditioning coach talking about these movements, about how they're going to do all this and that and help Brandon Roy. But, I mean, honestly, watching those videos, there's no – I mean, you know why he didn't last that long and why his knees just completely failed, failed him. So you had this amazing athlete uh, who you probably can do a lot of things, but then just basic movements – and a coach that didn't know what to look for just to maybe show off for the media, box jumps with dumbbells, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, that coach was hurting that athlete versus helping him. So there's also athletes out there that, I mean, they don't know any better. Whether it's ego or not, they just do what they're told, and, you know, coaches don't, don't know what to look for. When I was in Philadelphia, uh, they started the new uh, Novacare Center, and they had this incredible, like, 20,000-square-foot weight, weight room with all this stuff, and they wanted to, like, bring in the media and do this big deal, and so they asked the strength coach and the trainer to kind of put together this, like, workout that kind of utilized everything, and they put together this kind of what, you know, CrossFitters would look at and think, oh, that's, that's a lot of volume, pretty crazy deal. It was like squats, weighted pull-ups. I mean, it's all, you know, sp sprints on the treadmill, and they just kind of threw this hodgepodge together. And I remember um, they, uh, it was, they, they were trying to show off for, obviously, the media, but it was unrepresentative of the training that they had been doing. And I remember Rick Burkholder was the trainer coming over, and he's like, hey, uh, I want you to do this. And I was like, why? He's like, well, I think you're the only one that can do all this. I'm like, well, you know I don't train here. He's like, I know. So we need you to do this. <laughs> and I remember going out and doing this, and they're like, oh, that was great. I mean, for the same reason when I went to Verstegen's place, they filmed a whole documentary on his training, and I had only been there like two weeks, and I was the guy they chose. So I think it was it spoke volumes about what we did for the training for so long was um, – you know, people see your ability to do stuff. I mean, you watch, you know, 300 pound dude do, you know, banging out pull ups and doing all this, and people think that's impressive. But, you know, there was a time when, you know, how, how did you get there? How did you progress it? And I think that's where people really get wrapped up is everybody wants to see, like, the sexy stuff. They want to see the cool stuff. I mean, they want to see chains and bands and all this cool, you know, what we would count, uh, you know, outside the box type training. When it's actually just the hard work. I mean, all the little things, and uh, really focusing on that kind of posture and that position and that movement and doing things properly. And you know, it's not sexy. It's it's hard work, and hard work is never sexy. So it's just part of the deal. Raf, where did you uh, where did you come up with this stuff? I mean, you got like a master's and or a doctorate and biomechanics or something or like who are some of the who are you influenced by um i and and i don't want to shortchange anybody but i really would love to pride myself on the fact that i i just learn by observing and i've got a very number one curious nature number two kind of rebellious nature and so when i was in when I was a assistant strength negotiator at Sam Easton State, I, I noticed our my boss, Ben Pollard, a phenomenal strength and coach, um, very well respected for the last 30 years, 40 years. Um, we spent a lot of time getting guys really strong in the weight room, big squats, big, big cleans, big bench, and... Um, the thing that really bothered me when I was when I was a, a young and up and comer was I recognized that a lot of that uh, 
uh, we're spending so much time on that, but a lot of it wasn't carrying over onto the field. You know, we had a we had a six seven hundred pound squatter, and he used to get folded uh, like a pancake every day, and and it amazed me. I used to literally watch during spring ball this guy um, getting crushed, and it blew my mind. I mean, it really laid the groundwork for how I wanted to develop my training system, and that was two things. Number one, whatever we do in the weight room um, had to carry over to skill acquisition. So no matter what it is that the athlete chose to do, I always try to say, okay, that's great, you bench more, but what does that mean to you being a better basketball player? How does that contribute to you being a better swimmer? How does that contribute to you being a better archer? You pick it, I want to know, um, and it might have a great carryover, it might have a minuscule carryover, but I want to find out if it does help you become a better fill-in-the-blank. Then the other aspect was I watch guys squat heavy, and I'd watch their knees cave in. I'd watch their knees drive out. And my personal experience is just like John, you know, you train and you train with a lot of engagement, and you figure out, well, when I get to the bottom of a squat, all of a sudden, I've got to, and I used to squat really wide with my, my feet wide, my toes out, and I noticed the very first thing for me was to come out of the hole, I would drive them in, and I recognized right there, there was a disconnect for me. I knew that if I was going to apply that onto the field, if I was going to apply that into um, whatever it is I chose to do, that something was was not right there for me. And so I started to do a bunch of research on my own, um, and then I, I quickly recognized that the human body is the same, regardless of, of who you are, um, whether you're, you're a big old bear like John Wellborn or you're a little Filipino guy like myself. Um, it's just really based off of bone length, you know, how much muscle mass is put on there and the wiring that connects all of it together. But all the joints, for the most part, work the same. So I started to break down the human body from my understanding and um, I started to put together a system that, that would, number one, work on posture. Um, number two would be to develop positioning. And then number three is could I challenge an athlete in their ability to stay in that posture or stay in that positioning? Because like what we talked about before, it's all about kinetic alignment. The moment that you move out of that power base, you're losing performance. So I knew that if I kept my knees and my toes aligned and my hips back and I wasn't shifting to the right or the left, that was a powerful base for me so I could apply 100% or hopefully as close to 100% as I possibly could. And then over the years, the last 20 years, we've just been refining it. So, Ralph, we, uh, you know, I don't know – if this is uh, this is time to to bring up this conversation, but one thing me and Texas and Callie have been just rapping about when we travel on uh, seminars is we're, we're trying to work up kind of uh, a working definition of athleticism. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we we talk we include uh, a lot of in terms of competency and awareness of posture, position through primal movement, range of motion as it applies to your sport. But I was curious, if you were to define athleticism, how would you go about doing that? Obviously, you take your basic fundamental movement abilities. Somebody who has some resemblance of strong, fast, agile, good hand-eye coordination, mentally tough, 
emotionally strong, things of that nature. Um, but the one thing that I always look at when I watch somebody move, and of course, move well. You know, we all we all talk about it, and nobody can clearly define it. But we all know when we watch somebody move. We watch Michael Jordan on a basketball court. I'm like, listen, I don't know what his bench is. I don't know what he squats, but I know when I'm watching him, I can see somebody who's very fluid. So for me, I look at fluidity of movement. And number two is I want to see somebody learn skills quickly. And that's something that a lot of people don't talk about, but we as performance coaches, we know I can take a John Wellborn and I could say, okay, John, this is new exercise. This is what I'm looking for. I'll demo it. I'll tell you what I'm looking for. And John, within the first couple of reps, will pick it up pretty quick. Versus we've got athletes that are, good God, we've been going over this and I'm about to hit you in the head with a hammer because it's been six months now and you're still doing the same stupid mistakes. So learning quickly is always a, a good indicator of whether somebody's a good athlete to me. And biomechanics quickly. Now, but I guess uh, we've had a couple guys walk through our gym as, and uh, just kind of help uh, look for John for some help. And, I mean, these guys are some, like you've said, they don't learn quickly. They're not very good movers. But somehow they still manage to perform at some of the highest levels of sport. Um, I guess where is what is what bridges that gap where there's somebody who doesn't exude this athleticism, in your opinion, who doesn't exude this athleticism that we can – observe but still manages to play at that high level of competition well we always have to remember that being a a accomplished athlete is a combination of athleticism and skill and it's that constant dance between the two if you take a look at a rookie NFL guy he might come off of the combine with this unbelievable 4340 and he bench press 40 times 225 and he's got all of these great things and we look at that and he accomplishes a lot of things because of his God-given abilities but now let's fast forward and take that same athlete and put him into the 10-year veteran category or 15-year veteran category like a Rondé Barber like a um, any of those guys that have been playing a long time in a very strong position, a Derek Brooks, a John Lynch, um, guys like that. Now, all of a sudden, the physical department might be there, and they may not be as much of an athlete as they used to be, but the skill sets are significantly higher. So watching John Lynch in practice when I was with the Bucks was amazing because he never made any wrong steps. His skill set was so good that watching film – his veteran leadership, he knew where the ball was going to go every single time. So it didn't matter that he wasn't running a 4 5 four, six anymore physically because he knew where to go. So we always have to take an accomplished athlete and split that between their skill set and their physical set. And that, I guess what's leading into this too is we, we were just with uh, in Vegas talking with one of, the, one of the level one coaches out there who hosted – the CrossFit football seminar, and we got into a pretty interesting conversation about quantifying athleticism. And I, I guess in my head, when you talk about quant, you know, because the big thing with CrossFit is you quantify fitness. It's uh, force times distance over time, work capacity, broad times, mobile domains, and they can measure it through workouts. 
and that my argument to Callie and Tex and and this and the host was like the if you want to quantify it, look at the stats because at the end of the day, there's this skill component that is immeasurable, right? I mean, I don't know if you want to call it the X factor or what or experience, but uh, do you think there's a way that we could quantify athleticism? No. And, and at the end of the day, does it really even need to be? Because at the what this whole thing builds up to is your your on field performance. Um, I 100% agree with that, and the reason why I'm, I'm I wouldn't say I'm wholeheartedly against metrics and quantifiable is because it's in the human's mind's nature to 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 sway the metrics. So at some point in time, pull-ups were this great thing that helped build a big, strong back, to be able to swing an axe, to be able to swing a broadsword, to be able to swim faster so that I can get from one island to the other without the shark eating me. Um, but all of a sudden, we said, we're going to measure fitness, so we're going to see who can do the most pull-ups. Now, how do we measure that? Okay, that's great, but we have to have a standard. So we have to go, you know what, let's go chin over bar. Okay, that's great and fantastic, but then we lost the whole goal of a pull-up, and that was to build a stronger back because now all of a sudden I can just start jutting my chin, and it becomes a contest of not just who has a stronger back but who has the longer neck. And so we lost somewhere in there, and that applies to everything. We, you know, we did it for years with the NFL Combine Prep. I can get a guy to, when they initially test their reach, if you excessively lordotically tighten up your low back, it pulls your arm down. So you have a lower reach so that when you do your big vertical jump, magically his vertical went up by two inches when in fact it didn't. And those are all just metrics. And it comes back to what you exactly said is who cares as long as it equates to skill acquisition. We've all been there at you know coaching where I've, had, I've listened to coaches say, hey, listen, can you do this technique? And if they don't have, they're not fast enough, they're not strong enough, they're not blah, 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 um, then they can't do the technique. But it also goes the other route. How strong do you have to truly be to do certain things? And, and there is no measure for that. You know, to pass pro, all of a sudden, I've got a nice little pass pro set. And to be able to keep a bull rusher off me versus a speed rusher, there is no magic formula because it's a careful mix between inherent strength and footwork and how fast your hands are, um, how good your body positioning is. I mean, there's a lot of guys in the NFL that aren't 500-pound bench pressers that are good pass pro blockers. Mm -hmm. So the problem is these metrics should only carry over to the moment you start, the moment you stop acquiring skill, then you have to reevaluate what you're doing in the weight room. But wouldn't you, would you agree or disagree that for certain coaches who don't have, let's say, uh, have the experience that this is the the best tools that they have is to use these metrics and and kind of that coach's eye just to try and evaluate an athlete's skill or do you think that there's something better out there? Uh, I, I believe it's both. I believe that number one, we should we should all work together to change the culture of it. Um, you know, I I joke about this all the time with my staff, but. Uh, you know, we, we started out as warring peoples, and it always has to come back to it. You know, we um, with, with power athlete and CrossFit football, we talked about it for years, was, you know, nobody picked up a bar 
off the ground. They just try to develop more strength so they could pick up a heavier rock to kill somebody with or kill an animal with. Um, and so in the end, we have to do two things is I think that we need to change the culture. Um, and number two is I think it is a good thing that these metrics are there, but we have to keep them in perspective because they work great to keep athletes motivated and to keep progress. But one of the biggest mistakes that we always find as coaches that we find ourselves falling into this trap is sometimes we let these metrics and our athletes moving through these metrics, our goals sometimes hinder the goals of the athletes. You know, and I, I want to sit there and say, hey, everybody in my facility bench presses 300 pounds, but you know what? Maybe it's not that important for Johnny to bench 300 pounds. Maybe it's not his goal. Maybe it's not her goal. So we always have to keep that in mind is, yeah, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not. Uh, Raph had a good uh, one-liner yesterday. He worked with some uh, elite swimmers uh, this past weekend and came back and kind of told us about his experience. And a conversation he had with one of the swimmers uh, who, you know, just learning a lot of these new warm-ups, similar to stuff, and he said the conversation was, you know, work capacity training versus swimming, and the one-liner he had was, are you highly trained or highly effective? And kind of a light just went off in my head about some past conversations I've had with athletes or uh, coaches at the seminar of just kind of work capacity versus sport versus replication of speed. So I really like that one line. You have, are you chomping to get in on it? No, I, I think it's a great <laughs> conversation. I, I mean, we we've battled for years over this idea where. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, Mark Ripto and I had a great conversation about this, about, you know, being weight room strong, being field strong, and that is there a correlation between what you do in the weight room and what you do on the field. And what was always good for me is that as I improved in the weight room, I was always able to translate it onto the field, and a lot of guys were neither. I played with guys that weren't weight room guys that could that were great players that had great field strength, and I played with guys that were weight room monsters that couldn't translate it, and I played with a few guys that could translate it, and it was uh, a, a, you know, and Rip asked me, you know, was there anything universal about the guys, you know, about these people that you noticed? Was there one thing? And uh, when I really meditated on it, really thought back. Uh, the word that kept coming to mind was stiff. And if I say, if I had said to Roth, hey, that guy's a stiff, he would know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and that idea where he can't bend, he can't move, he can't really, you know, he's more of a waist bender, not a knee bender. He's just really stiff in his body and he doesn't necessarily know how to use it. He's not fluid. And the guys that were big weight room guys were just really stiff, just big, strong, really tight, tightly wound guys. And the guys that uh, you know, were maybe not big weight room guys, were better on the field, had a better, you know, I, I hate to beat the word mobility, but definitely were more mobile, more flexible, had their ability to kind of move better in space. And the guys that, uh, you know, had both of those skills were, you know, and I'll, I'll throw out all these little words in Rafa lap because they're just NFL uh, scouts and co words that coaches use, things like knee bender, uh, you know, 
try-hard guy. You know, guy can um, you know play in space. He he uh, understands a relationship between him and another player. Can play in a box. I mean, you go through all these little words, but as I really thought back on it, it was the guys that could bend and could move and slide their feet and stay and keep good position and maintain posture and position while moving in space. Uh, you know, those guys that were able to take their training and not lose that and then be able to, you know, increase their strength, increase their explosion, increase their movement, and then translate it onto the field with guys that didn't lose that and weren't stiff. And uh, that's like the worst. In the NFL, if a guy, you know, if you're referred to as a stiff, you might as well just go home be like, that guy's a stiff. And it, it, it's pretty hilarious to, like, think back on all these little deals. And as I just thought back on my conversation with Rip, it was those little, like, those just little, like, taglines that people would hang on people. Just now I look back, had so much meaning. And they, they just hit people directly on the head. But as a one, an athlete, and then going in and coaching and working with people and trying to develop people to be better athletes, I mean, uh, you know, my goal especially for my program, was never to make you better at my program. My goal was to make you better so that you could take this training and then go utilize it for whatever you need to be, and whether it's picking up a rock to hammer somebody with it or run through a wall or sprint or run jump and play or get a scholarship. I mean, it was all about performance. So I think people really started trying to quantify or uh, fitness, and we've talked about athleticism, but what the power athlete and what I think Roth and, and what we've always focused on was performance. Um, you know, don't talk about it, be about it. Like, yeah, that's great. You have a 300-pound bench press. You can squat. You can do all those things. But how did this level of training translate into your on-the-field or on the, you know, whatever it is, uh, field, pitch, ice, battlefield, whatever it is, how did that translate into perceived increased performance? And for me, the only way you can quantify any of this stuff is did you win or did you lose? Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's all I want to know. I mean, I've said it for years. Like, like I don't give a shit about the numbers. I don't care about the program. I don't care about any of this stuff where people are like, oh, well, what do you think about that guy's program? Like, people always ask me to comment on other programs. And I'm like, okay, uh, yeah, it looks great. I mean, they lift weights. They do all this stuff. But more importantly, tell me about your athletes. What have they done? Have they been successful? Because that should be the only mark of the program. If Roth brings in all these athletes and he trains them and nobody gets hurt, everybody gets a set, you know, uh, you know, seven-figure deal. Everybody's an All-Pro. Everybody goes to the Hall of Fame. Obviously, uh, you know, he started with a certain genetic pool that was already, you know, probably exposed to be successful. But he put together a style of training that was both successful. I mean, it's like. I mean, we, we've gone over this for years. I mean, take a look at University of Texas, and, you know, we'll all kind of laugh a little bit about it, but when you, at the University of Texas, gets the best athletes in the world go to UT. So does it really matter what their program was if you start with all the best athletes? To some extent. But then you watch a lot of those guys from UT that were great athletes that, you know, play in this program and do great in college, and, they, and very few of them do very well in the NFL because all of a sudden the, the, the playing field's leveled. And when you get to the NFL... Everybody's on the same playing field, and it comes down to either you're super gifted or you bust your ass. And if a guy's gifted and they bust their ass, they end up like Tony Gonzalez and play for 17 years and only have one major injury, and they're the best player to ever play the game. So I think that they, when we really look at it, if I could quantify something, it's performance. I mean, that's really what I am. I'm a performance coach. 
Uh, my style of training is about performance. Everything is about taking what you are, increasing your abilities, maximizing, you know, challenging posture and position through external forces, force lead, all of these cool things we talk about merely kind of section and kind of filter down into this small idea of increased performance. And that's all that's that's all I really want to qu uh, quantify about or quantify. People can argue about fitness, they can athleticism, all that, uh, you can have it. I just want to make people better and I want them to get better doing this style of training that allows them to get better. Outperform the opponent. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. You know, and when you outperform the opponent, you get to teabag them on Sunday. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Just teabagging. Just teabagging bitches. That's Good awesome, stuff. man. Like fucking teabagging Warren Sapp, right? I just had to yep. throw it out there again, man. We talked about that uh, at dinner the other night. Callie's like, you liked it when John said that. And I'm like, damn right. Fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, he's such a douchebag. <laughs> so, Ralph, you have a, you have a son. Uh, how, how old is your son, Ralph? Just a little bit younger, Jamie Achilles. What, just over two, right? Yeah, Raider's a couple months younger. I don't want to say, like, six... Or ten weeks younger than uh, Jamie Gillis. So I guess we just we just dropped them text. I got you now. All right, we're here. So we're, we're talking about we're talking about Raider and uh, and what the, what is what's Raphael's infant training camp going to look like for Dude, Raider? He's in the ba best observational environment of any any child I've had a you know chance to meet, which isn't a many. But I mean, uh, when Raph's clients they bring their three and four year olds in here. And Raiders two, about two. He's got better kind of uh, linguistic disc, linguistic skills. Just having a conversation <laughs> is is more entertaining than kind of these more advanced kids that are in school. And I mean, he's watching watching his mom and all these kind of uh, other really good movers move fast. So I mean, he's got the best observational environment right now of any of any kid. So I mean, aside from an MLB or NFL locker room. So no, so is he going on these uh, surf and turf runs with you guys? Does it is it like yeah. a school of hard knocks where Roth just kind of pitches them out and you know sink or swim, or is, does he have the the genes of the of Master Splinter? Yeah, I mean he he's out in the pool this morning with us, and I mean he's he's observing Olympic swimmers on the weekends. So uh, he's he's uh I mean he's making some good friends early on <laughs> in his life. So I mean they'll always be fans of him. So he'll uh, he'll get some good coaching, early age, whether it's in the pool or whatever he wants to do. Nice, that's good stuff. What uh, I think we're ro we're rolling out on on fumes here in terms of our time. We got to get going. But Ralph, do you have any good wellborn stories for us when he was training, just young, didn't know what he was doing, uh, something he'd probably never admit to us over at H uh, Power Athlete HQ? Probably not. Um, you know, when it comes to John. Um, you guys have quickly figured out there isn't anything that um, there isn't anything physically that, that he can't do that he can't set his mind to. Um, I'm laughing at Chris over here because John is a really good swimmer. We used to go to the pool, and uh, the guy's like a freaking polar bear, and then he gets in the water and he's just freaking cruising by. You know, a lot of our UT swimmers. So the big guy can swim well. Is um, just throw a, another hat on his head. Uh, John was telling me a story about how he almost beat you in a 100-meter dash. Oh, he did. <laughs> he did. 
Yeah, that was uh, that was one of my biggest or one of my moments when we went out and ran one day, and uh, we'd been doing all this sprint training, and we had really maxed it out, and all of a sudden we used to go out there and Roth, you know, I can come out there and uh, you know run with us a little, and you know try to show us up, and uh, I think uh, like on the sixth, seventh hundred, all of a sudden, you know, like we got out, and I got out pretty fast, and he was like right within distance of me. And he used to get out real quick and then try to try to slow it down. And uh, as he went to kind of you know shift it down a little, I fucking picked it up. And all of a sudden he looks over and sees me and he's like, Ooh! and he took off. And like, dude, we were hauling, but I had enough head headway on him. I think I had like a tailwind too catching me. So, but uh, I almost got him. That was uh, I, I bet you like at that point that was probably one of the fastest I was in my career. Like that day, if you would have timed me, I think I could have run just about anything I wanted to. Really. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Does that story check out, Rob? Oh, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. Well, good stuff. Uh, do we have anything else? We didn't have anything anything else on the docket, did we, Danny? No, we're good. We're good. All right, good stuff. Hey, Rob, thanks for taking the time, man. I know you're uh, you're a busy dude. Um, and I guess I'm gonna be fortunate. Enough. I'll be seeing you guys next week. Getting yep. put through the ringer, I'm sure. Should I bring my swimsuit? Clothing optional. Clothing optional? All right, well, if I go down naked, I want you to save me, right? <laughs> uh, that's why we're getting text ready. He'll save you. <laughs> Sounds good. But uh, you got anything to add, Tex? We're off anything over there? Uh, yeah, yeah, I will say this. Uh, I mean, I have uh, did college strength and conditioning for two years, and, I mean, it was all about the coaches and uh, Raf's perspective here. I mean, even from day one, I got it written down in my book of quotes. It's empower the athletes. So how can you just put them in a position to succeed? And that's the reason they're coming to you or uh, whatever it is. I mean, your goal and focus is always the athletes and just everywhere I went, it's always been kind of uh, coaches flexing nuts. And I mean, I've seen plenty of injuries occur on the field and it's unfortunate. So, I mean, the big thing is here just kind of empowering the athletes through education, through effective training, and then putting them in a position where you send them off to the coaches. And then, I mean, in one off season, they go from third string to starter. So it's, uh, I mean, we, we mentioned 144-1 University in the beginning. And I got to say, if there's any coaches that are willing to invest kind of three months in education and truly changing the game, take it. Summer internship, whatever it is, do it. All right, and then you got you. Do you have any info that I could post up on show notes or on the site? Uh, I mean, I'll link up uh, all the Facebook pages, uh, the websites, and um, uh, links to videos. I mean, if people, big thing at seminars, nobody knows what the hell a multi-plane, multi-directional movement is. Yeah. So, yeah. So Raph's got just kind of a, an archive building on Facebook of different movements that people shouldn't be afraid to kind of get out of the box and program. So we'll if, someone, if someone wanted to pop in and, and try and get a 90-day internship, who do they contact? Contact me. Send it over. We'll put the uh, I'll put my email up there, and they can uh, they can send right, me. Sounds good. If you uh, put Raphael at pretty much any combination of one four four one TFR dot US, I mean just anything with one four four one in it, there's a good chance it'll get to Raph. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, sounds good. Thanks, guys. All right, brother. See you. Hey, thanks. See you, thanks guys. Thanks for joining us, Roth. Will do. All right, see you guys later. Bye.